good morning. Thank you for joining uh, Open Door Community Church. I'm Pastor Brian. I'm so glad you're joining me wherever it is you're online. Um, whatever day it is, I realize I just said good morning, but it might not be morning wherever you are and whenever you're watching this. And so whatever time it is, thanks for joining us. Um, it's going to be a little bit of a different day today because I'm missing Joe. He's having a day off. He's having a week off, which he well deserves. He works so hard for us, and it's nice to have a little bit of a break. And so worship's going to go a little differently today. We're going to have um, a band come in and, and lead us in, in worship, and then when they're done, I'll come back and I'll and I'll uh, I'll, I'll preach uh, from Mark, Mark chapter three. We're back into Mark, and um, I don't think we have any announcements. Do we have any announcements today, Jesse? I don't think so. Yeah, no announcements. You know, Christmas time for, for us pastors is really busy, and then we get to January and we go, oh, at least a little bit of a break before we start gearing up for Easter. So there's no announcements. Not much is happening right now, which is kind of nice. Um, but before we get into it today, I wanted to remind you um, to check out our podcast on Wednesday evenings. Um, where we talk more about the sermon, and um, and then there's some Bible studies and stuff and prayer group on Tuesday evenings uh, at 7.30 that you can join as well. Now, um, before I, I turn it over to the worship, I wanted to kind of get you thinking about what is the, uh, the, 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 the topic for today. We're in Mark chapter 3. And the title of the sermon in, in, for the service is Consequences and conclusions, or conclusions and consequences. Right now, in, in this day, particularly this week, there's so much politically happening. And what I want us to get us to do is to think about the divisiveness that's going on in the Scripture here, and let that be what is the framework, the, the, the issues that we stand on. It'll be an interesting one. And we're going to be talking about one of the most scary verses in the whole Bible, um, the unforgivable sin. So that's what we're going to be wrapping on, and I think you're going to find it's both really encouraging and a little bit sobering all at the same time. So let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll get into worship. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time to worship you. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence and to hear your voice. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. Praise you that we get to worship you. Praise you that you have opened our eyes to see your glory, Jesus, and to worship you as, as you deserve. And that's what we ask that we, you would help us to do now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, we're going to be talking about a section in Scripture that really reveals the divisiveness of Jesus. There are many ways that we can divide up the world, divide up people. We can do it by the, by the rich and the poor. We can do it by those who have and those who don't, those who have power and those who don't have power. We can divide it up by race. We can divide it up by, by, by the, who's on the right and who's on the left. We can do it by... Who's a masker and who's not a masker? We can divide it by capitalist or communist in so many different ways. And there's so many uh, uh, forces in our, in our society right now trying to get us to choose one of these ways to divide the world. And what I want to encourage you to do is, is to reject those 
frameworks and divide the world the way Jesus does, the way the Scripture does. And that's what we're going to see here. It's a section here in, in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20, going to the end and the uh, end of, chap, of chapter 3. Now, there's three parts to it. In fact, I'm going to even just go to the very, this very verse right here. And here, it, it don't go forward. And then Jesus, he went home, and a crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So he goes home, and something happens. Next verse. And when his family heard it, that he went home, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And it's the beginning of the story. It's the beginning of the story. And Mark does this very common thing. It's very, he's very famous for doing it. It's called a sandwich technique, in which he starts a story, he interrupts the story with another story, and then concludes the story. This is the beginning of the story. It's going to conclude with that the next time I preach, but... But in between that, this story about his family coming to seize him because they think he's crazy, he's a lunatic, he, Mark inserts this, this story about the Pharisees, excuse me, the scribes, calling Jesus possessed by Satan. And Jesus re responds to that. And it is that intersection, that piece in between the story, that gives us context for what the, the larger story is, in this case, about his family. So we need to understand the middle first. And what all of both of these stories are about is about how divisive Jesus is. It, in this context, even in just these two verses, you see all this amazing crowd that loves Jesus. They adore him. He's just uh, appointed his apostles. And at the end of this story, he's going to be surrounded by all these people who think Jesus is amazing. And in contrast to that, you have his family who thinks he's crazy. And you're going to see in a moment the Pharisees who thinks he's evil. Extreme reactions, stre extremely opposite, polar opposite conclusions about who Jesus is. And he says there's going to be consequences for holding that viewpoint. So let's take a look at this. All right? Verse 22. This is, the, uh, this is the, the, the accusation part of it. Verse 22 and 23. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem, and they were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. He kept, it is by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now that's his argument. That's the accusation. Is that Jesus is... He's possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebub. Some, some different translations have it either way. As we're going to see down in a moment, it's another name for Satan. He's possessed by Satan, and that's how he's doing all of these, the, these, these exorcisms. They're saying Jesus isn't good. In fact, he's evil. He's straight up evil is their argument. It's an absolute full rejection of him as a person. They're not saying, they're not saying, that he's not doing it. Notice this. They're not denying his, 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 his a power to, to do these things. He clearly has a power. They're questioning the source of it. And in, in doing this, they're saying that Jesus is not the Son of God. He is not the Messiah. He's not the Beloved One. He's not the Son of Man. He's not the person he says he is. He is, in fact, evil. And this name for Beelzebub, it means 
the house of filth, house of lies. Um, it's a it's a ripoff. It's a twisting of this Canaanite god's name, um, Baal, who is is one of the chief rivals to the worship of Yahweh in the area. And what what, what they're doing here is it he's they're saying instead of being Lord of of all these these demons. The, uh, of, of, of these great powers and to be worshipped, he's, he's the lord of garbage. And there's also the play on that he's, he's the lord of the unclean, the unclean spirits. It's another way of saying Satan. It's another way of saying Satan. And so what they're saying is, we will not listen to you, Jesus. We will not obey you. We will not submit to you. We will not honor or worship you because you are not just um, deluded you're not just lying to us. You're evil. No, and that's their accusation. They're not denying the power. They're denying the source. Which, as a side note, faith doesn't come from miracles. Faith doesn't come from, from displays of power. So many times we would, we would think that if only we had seen a, a real miracle, then we would go, oh, I believe in you, Jesus. But these guys are seeing miracle after miracle after miracle. And they've come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't the Messiah. He isn't the Son of God. He's not even good. He's evil and doing evil. In spite of these things, in the face of these, they've, they've seen the evidence and they've come to the opposite conclusion than what you would think you should. Well, here's Jesus ref, his, his refuting that argument. Verse 23. And Jesus called them, the scribes, to him, and he said to them in parables, in, in little stories that make a point. And here's the point of, these, of this whole section is how can Satan cast out Satan. His argument is going to be a logical, a rational argument. And this is the summary of it. Next verse. And here's his argument. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. It's a general statement against all, um, just in general, whether it's a, a basketball team, or it's a nation, or it's um, and, and just even a group of friends trying to work together. If if a group of people do not stand in unity, they, they, they can't win. They can't succeed. This is no caricature of, of Satan. He's assuming Satan is not stupid. He's assuming a, a degree of intelligence, and it's an obvious answer. He's saying, look, you know this is the case. Unity brings strength. And if, if Satan is fighting against itself, he can't win. If, if Satan acted in this way, he, it would be suicidal. Next verse. And if the house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. Same, same argument. Okay? Verse 26. And if Satan has written, risen up against himself, he is divided. And he cannot stand, and is, but is coming to an end. So here's Jesus' argument. The, the, the accusation is that you're doing this by the power of Satan, that Satan is casting out Satan. And he's like, that's illogical. It makes no sense. Why would Satan do, why would he fight against himself? You're being irrational. In fact, you're being a little bit insane. 
Your argument makes no sense. That's his argument. That's, what, that, that's, that's his rebuttal to their accusation. And since he is under attack, clearly Jesus is saying, I am under attack. I am attacking Satan by removing people from the, his power. Then who's doing that? It can't be Satan. The conclusion is obvious. It's, it, it's another power. And who's powerful enough to stop Satan? It's obviously God. Now, he's, he's tapping into this issue that is really clear in, in, in first century Judaism. It was assumed that the Messiah would be doing things like this. And there's a whole bit I can I could bring into that on why that's the case. But just suffice it to say, is they knew in their in their worldview, in their understanding, it was very, very obvious and very clear, it was not a debatable subject, that when the Messiah comes, when this one that they're hoping for comes, the exorcisms is going to be one of the things he does. He's going to be doing things like kicking Satan out of, of people, removing people from the bondage of Satan. And so he's saying, look, I'm doing the things that you know I'm supposed to be doing. I'm being what, I'm so, what, what you all would agree is a sign that I am who I'm saying I am but you've concluded the very opposite. Why are you doing that? Have you ever had someone listen to evidence about a topic and, and come to not to the rational, clearly logical response, clearly logical conclusion? A, one plus one equals two. Yep. And they go, one plus one equals orange. It's like, what, why are you, where did you get that? That, has, that? that doesn't work. This is his argument. You're being irrational, scribes, and you know it. They see the evidence about Jesus. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the exorcisms. They're not denying that they're fake. They're not that, that, that he's doing them. They're not saying, oh, you're faking that. They're not denying that he's healing lepers. He's, they're not denying that he's, he's, he's fixed a man who has a crippled hand. They're just seeing that exact evidence, and they're calling evil good and good evil. It's astounding that people can come to that kind of conclusion, having seen the clear evidence. Well, that's the accusation and, and, and the re refutation. You're, you're, you're evil, you're satanic. And Jesus' response is, that's, ir that's irrational. That's an irrational position to have. And then he moves on to the next section, and he says, I'm going to tell you what's really happening and, and, and the consequences of it. What's actually occurring, Pharisees, uh, scribes? You know, but let me bl be blunt with here. And he goes to the very next, so what's really happening? And he goes into that, and starting in verse 28. Verse 28, 27. 
Uh, but no one can enter into a strong man's house. This is his parable. He's giving this kind of a little story with a point. No one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. Now, it's a simple story, right? If you're going to go rob someone's house and, and there's a big powerful person in there, you obviously have to subdue that strong man before you can pull him out, before you can take his TV, right? Simple, right? And why would, and by the way, to, to, to make the argument earlier, why would that person rob his own house? That makes no sense. That's his argument earlier. Here he's trying to explain what he's doing. It's a matter of, and let me just put some people in here so you can understand what's going on. The strong man, that's Satan. His house is people in the world that's under his control. And what Jesus is doing He's plundering that house. He's rescuing people. He's taking them out of Satan's house, his kingdom, and rescuing them. He's binding him. He's overcoming him. This is what's really happening here. Next verse. Oh, sorry, go back. This is what's... This in Colossians chapter, three, chapter 1, is what's happening, what Jesus is talking about here. It's just the way Paul says it. He has delivered us, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Scripture puts the ministry of Jesus into this context of a war between two rival kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of his beloved son. And what Jesus is saying here, what's really happening, is that he is going into the kingdom of darkness and plundering it, transferring people from the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of, his, of, his, uh, of, his, of the beloved son. The whole worldview is that this idea is that, that God is rescuing people. That the entire scope of the, he's saying the entire scope of the ministry of what Jesus is doing, of the Son of Man, of, of, of the Messiah, can be seen through the lens of conflict with, between supernatural powers. Between two rival nations. Between real spiritual beings. This is what he says is happening. And the exorcisms, the, 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 the removing people from, their, from the demons that are tormenting them, that they're merely illustrations of the larger picture of what Jesus is doing. That this, that in Colossians 1, that, as Paul puts it, the entire enterprise of what Jesus is doing is... is is when we save people, is to bring them out of the, the power, the dominion, the influence, the captivity of the evil one, and rescuing them and putting them into the kingdom of God. That's what's happening, says Jesus. That's the worldview. 
And it's the worldview, frankly, of the scribes. They just think it's the, Jesus is working for the other team. This is the worldview. This is what's really happening, Jesus says. We have the accusation. We have the, 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 the refuting of it. It's illogical. We said, this is what's really happening. I'm plundering the other kingdom. But here's the consequences. Here are the consequences of what I'm doing and, you have, and, and of your position of saying, I am evil. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, whatever blasphemies. The first thing he says, the conclusion to all of this, where this is all going to go, is, is forgiveness will be available. What's going to end up happening with these Pharisees, I, I keep calling them Pharisees, but they're actually scribes, and there's not a whole lot of difference, but I want to be exactly right, is they're going to end up killing Jesus. They're going to be bringing him to the cross. They're going to bring him to the point where, where he, is, he, he, he takes our sins on that you can be forgiven. The next verse is going, which I, we don't need to go to yet, is going to be the unforgivable, talking about the unforgivable sin. And let me begin by talking about what is not, what it is not. All sins are forgivable. It's not the things you think it might be. It's not murder. It's not suicide. It's not abortion. It's not some sexual sins, even ones that are repeated over and over and over. Not drugs. It's not even persecuting the church and saying bad things about Jesus. All sins. God, everything can be forgiven, my dear people. I know some of you out there feel like, I've just messed up so much, I can't, God will never forgive me. I've done it too many times, too big a times, you know, and I've said some horrible things. I, you know, I, I know maybe there's even someone here today who has worshipped Satan, who said, Jesus, you are bad and Satan is wonderful. And I'm telling you, even this can be forgiven because Jesus goes to the cross. The consequence of, of, of what's happening in this case is Jesus' death for us on the cross to forgive us our sins. As, as Paul will say in Colossians chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 13. And we, you, were, were dead in our transgressions and trespasses, the uncircumcision of flesh, but God made us alive together with him. How? By forgiving our trespasses. All of our sins. Next verse. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us and all its legal demands, he set aside these aside, nailing them to the cross. So even the mere thing that records your, your sins is nailed to the cross. All your sins, past, present, and all the ones you would you will do. The, even, even the very thing that records them is nailed to the cross. You're forgiven. You're washed clean. 
Because as Isaiah 56, 53, verse 6 says, we all have sinned. We've all, like sheep, have sinned and gone astray, right? But the Lord has laid on Him, that is Jesus, our sin. And so I want you to hear, you are forgiven, you are clean, you are righteous. If you confess your sins, Jesus says you are the scripture says you are, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1 9, which we have. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he that is God is faithful, meaning he will always do it. He is just, meaning it's right for him to do it. Why? Because they've been nailed to the cross to forgive us of all our sins. And cleanse us from every impurity. You are not dirty. You are not gross. You are not unclean. You've never gone too far to be forgiven. Which is why Paul calls us saints, which is in Ephesians 1. The saints who are in Philippi. Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, to the saints. You're a saint. And you go, but I don't deserve to be saint. I say, that's, ooh. That's the point. That, that, that feeling of, I don't deserve this. You're right. You don't. Neither do I. No one does. Now you maybe you have a sense of the amazing gift that God has given you through Jesus. And so when we come back to this, this passage here in, in, in Mark, where Jesus says, all sins are forgiven, he means all sins can be forgiven. All of them. But one. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And there's the scary verse. Now let's, for a moment, let's, let's look at this word blasphemy. Blasphemy is a word that means slandering. It means... Um, it's the opposite of honoring and valuing um, someone, in particularly, particularly God. It's disrespecting Him. And so I can say the phrase, for example, "Oh my God," and that can either be a, a that can either be a blasphemous statement of flippantly saying it just for no reason, or I could be it could be an expression of worship. Oh my God, you are amazing. It depends on how and why I say it. What's the attitude of my heart? And the issue with blasphemy, it's to treat something as something that is holy, something is good, something is beautiful, something God itself, and we're treating it like filth, as, as, as it's meaningless. Something of weight as if it's light. That's blasphemy. It's, it is, as it says in, in, in Isaiah 5, calling good evil and evil good. And that's exactly what the, the scribes are doing. They're woe to those, Isaiah 5, and woe to you, to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, that's exactly what's happening in this text. Is you have these Pharisees who are saying the very incarnation of good. 
is actually evil. The work of the Holy Spirit is evil. That's what they're doing. They're calling sweet, bitter, light. The light of the Holy Spirit is actually dark. This is what's happening. Because the very next verse, going back to Mark, is, is he's, they're saying this because they're saying he has an evil spirit. The issue is this, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, to be, just, to, just to put it into a clear, simple thing, it's, it's going so far in your rejection of Jesus. You've, you've seen all the evidence. You know who he is. And you not just resist the Holy Spirit. It's not like saying, yeah, I don't know about Jesus. It's not even, even to the point where I don't want you, Jesus. But it's coming to the place we are so hardened in your heart that you permanently, forever, think God is actually evil. He hasn't, he's not even actually stating that the, the scribes have committed this. It's a warning. It's a warning that the direction they're going can bring to this point. It's the, it's, it, it, to say it another way, it's a final and full and irrevocable rejection of Jesus. Because what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, what is he doing here? What has he been doing? He's been doing miracle after miracle to prove, to give clear and obvious evidence to support the claims of Jesus, that he is, as we saw in verse 1 of this gospel, he is the Son of God. He is the Beloved. He is the Messiah you've been longing for. He's the one you need to honor. He's the one you need to worship. He's the one you need to listen to. You need to obey. You need to submit to him. You need to trust him. He's been given evidence of this. He's been trying to convict people of their sin and their need for his righteousness, which is exactly what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does in, in John 16, starting in verse 8. John 16, verse 8. And when he, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Right? And concerning sin, why? This is the sin that they need to repent of. Not believing. Because it is that sin that will provide, that prevents all the other forgiveness coming. If you, if you accept Christ, all the other stuff are taken care of. Every other sin in the Bible can be forgivable. Everything you might do. But not rejecting the one source of forgiveness. Not rejecting that one thing. It's not resisting the Spirit. Paul did that. It's not even repeatedly sinning. It's not murder. It's not adultery. 
All these things. It's not even saying bad things about Jesus. It's that sin that will bring, that, that maybe it's that one at the very end when, you know, on Judgment Day where you finally look at the glory of God, you look at the glory of Jesus, and you see quite plainly that He is good, that He is the very source of life, He's the very source of, of, of joy and hope and peace. And you say, you're evil. That you won't accept it. That's what, that's what they're doing here. That they're heading down that path. And Jesus, the man of compassion and kindness, is saying, listen to me. Where you're going has dire consequences. You need to stop. You're being irrational. It is obvious that you've concluded something very wrong. Why, why are they thinking like this? What, what would cause someone to get to this point? The only thing I can think of is they, 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 they know the, the consequences. They know what's going to have to happen, these, these scribes, if they, if they acknowledge the clear evidence, they're going to have to honor Jesus. They're going to have to not be the center of the world anymore. They, they're they're going to have to, to listen to him. They don't get to determine what's right and wrong. They don't, have, they don't get to, to be the center of attention anymore. He does. They have to submit to him. They have to sit down with all the rest of the crowd at Jesus' feet and listen to him, to follow him. What's the conclusion to all of this? Is that what you conclude about Jesus has eternal consequences. So don't reject Jesus. Don't reject Jesus. This is the dividing line that Christians need to stand on. This is the issue that we need to die over. Not what happens in the culture, not what happens in politics, not what happens with all this other stuff. It's this. What do you think about Jesus? He's the only source of forgiveness. He is the source of forgiveness. And to reject him, even today, not just back then, even today, the, the, the evidence is clear. The evidence is overwhelming. And I know there are skeptics out there and say, well, no, it's not. Yeah, that's the whole point. It is. That's what I'm saying. It is clear. It is obvious. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is very clear. The problem is, is the implications for you, if it's true, maybe they don't, they're ones you don't want. We need to have the same. I know these are scary words, and this is a scary topic, but it's like we need to understand that, that 
this whole passage, it's bringing to head the divisiveness of Jesus to the very top. You've got his family coming who's saying, you're insane, Jesus. You have these religious people who are saying, you're evil, Jesus. And he's saying, your position is, is irrational, and my dear people, you need to understand that you're treading, you're going down a path that has very dire circumstances. Conclude rightly about who I am. Now, that's the message. What will you stand on in this next year? Because I know there's going to be a lot of things pulling you in a lot of different ways. Stand on, on what people think about Jesus. Now there might be some of, it, some of you here that it's like, but I am terrified that, I, that I've committed this eternal sin, this unforgivable sin. And I, I'm here to tell you, if you have turned to Jesus, you're not going to. No matter how many times you've sinned, no matter how many times you've done it over and over, keep coming back to Jesus, pleading for mercy. You have it. Right? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for tonight. It's a heavy sermon. It's a heavy message. And I pray, Father, that you would you would use my humble, uh, um, flawed ability to communicate your word to people, um, that you would use that well, that people would hear your heart in it and, 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 and not my, my, my flawed heart, your, that they would hear your love for them, your compassion. Lord, I pray for your people. One, to be convinced that there's there is, there is a lavishness to your forgiveness. But also, Father, to understand that, that what people conclude about you is of the utmost importance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming tonight, today, whatever it is, today, tomorrow, and... Uh, May God bless you. If you have questions about the sermon, let me know. I'd love to build a dialogue with you about that. Don't reject Jesus. Don't doubt his forgiveness. Come to him. And his arms are always wide. See you next time.